0: Brick Moon Fiction presents Moonshot by Jason D. April, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Mr. Menchins will see you now, the receptionist said. Tarvin looked up at her. There was something about her that bugged him. She was too perfect. Redhead, red lips, hourglass body, and what was the old phrase? Buttoned up and spotless, maybe? She seemed artificial but he'd never seen or heard of a robot approximating a human to this level of perfect. If anyone could or had, it'd be William Menchins, though. Tarvin nodded without a word and stood up. She led him through Menchins' inner office door, an eight-foot-long slider he knew had to be reinforced steel at minimum. It opened silently, just slowly enough to add drama. Inside, Menchins' office was an almost spherical-shaped room, larger than Tarvin's apartment. The hemispherical ceiling and most of the walls looked like a view of a pristine night sky, the Milky Way looming large behind the old man. Mention sat at an oversized half-moon desk, tapping on the shiny surface, amidst soft blue in-wall lighting that lined the room along the floor. The old man looked up in that way people who know they're above you do when they call you in, almost acting surprised that you showed up to interrupt their work. He smiled and stood. Mr. Tarvin Bearish, he said in an altogether too chipper tone. Moving around his desk, he held his hand out to Tarvin, who shook it without comment. I'm terribly happy to see you, Mr. Berish. He turned and headed back to his chair, waving a finger in the air. I have something that needs doing, he said, standing with one hand on his chair. Something extraordinary. Please sit. He gestured to a leather chair in front of his desk, and both men sat. There was an awkward pause as the old man looked expectantly at Tarvin, who remained silent. Menchins laughed once and shook his head. "'Right,' he said with an amused grin. "'Right down to it. I need you to acquire something. It's very valuable and very far away. It's an insane impossible task, in fact. But I was told by very reliable sources that you excel at that sort of thing.' Without waiting for a reaction, Menchins tapped on his desk with no small degree of flourish and looked up. Tarvin did too. He saw the moon, first from a distance, but the view was closing in fast, moving around it and settling at what Tarvin thought was the South Pole. It was a round black spot on the moon that overtook the whole room. The lights went out and only Menchins remained illuminated by the terminal's light on his desk. I'm told you're a highly educated man, Menchins said. So I'll spare you the idiot explanation. A rock hit the moon's south pole. There's no public record of it, but some of us have been tracking it for a long time with great interest. When it hit, it... He stopped for a second, as if trying to find the right word. Deposited something. Something that has the potential to revolutionize our understanding of the universe. It shouldn't be very large. Hell, you'll probably be able to put it in your pocket. It will look, based on our best estimates, like pure gold. But it's not gold. It's not dangerous in itself, totally inert, not radioactive or anything like that. The old man looked up in the dark as the sky showed them a glistening piece of lumpy rock. The image faded, the light softly glowed again, and Menchins stared at Tarvin with a smile on his face. Tarvin leaned forward, staring at the man. Mr. Menchins, he finally said. How exactly does one get to the dark side of the moon where the sun never shines? Oh, Menchin said, chuckling, have I got a story for you. Tarvin had made a career out of never looking scared. Of anything. No matter what hell was raining down, he was made of stone. He was a rock. His sense faded in and out to the sounds of alarms blaring, red lights flashing, and the distinctly unsettling feeling of floating. He was, in fact... Afraid. He hated flying, but the launch was pressure like nothing he'd ever experienced. There were only ten passengers on board, and only seven of them were actually the billionaire customers for the most deranged travel company in human history. The others, Tarvin recognized immediately, had been security. For a couple of the rich assholes, he had guessed, though why they'd need muscle to do space flyby was something of a question. There were a lot of questions, so many red flags. The plan, as Menchins detailed it, was simple, a mere delivery boy job. Except in space, which made everything absurdly complicated. He got his ticket aboard the first commercial spaceflight, more than 20 years later than its billionaire designer, Aton Vask, had planned. There was to be a layover of sorts at the newly christened International Space Station 2, part research station, part zero-g luxury hotel for the uber-rich and all still under construction. Get there, make the handoff with Mention's contact, and enjoy the view. All so easy Mention's had paid in advance, just as Tarvin boarded the shuttle. Tarvin had learned long ago never to trust his employers, which is why he usually didn't bother having any. Curiosity and greed had gotten the better of him, though, and this was the painfully inevitable result. Free-floating, barely tethered by a broken seatbelt, above the dark side of the moon. He shook his head, trying to remember exactly where everything went foobar. There was an impact just after they did the recreational pass over the south lunar pole. The flight plan was to hold a geosynchronous orbit with the pole for dinner, which seemed shamelessly absurd to Tarvin. The ship had managed its orbit lock as magnetically controlled serving trays began to float through the center aisle to deliver their million-dollar meals. Then the first crack came, muffled, but close enough to deliver the sound of crushing metal, and the shuttle lurched in disorienting slow motion. It hit the service section of the shuttle behind the passengers and instantly created a sucked vacuum as the attendants were busy sending the service carts out. There wasn't even time for screaming, as at least two other passengers who were strapped in were pulled backward violently. Then the emergency airlock sealed. A second later, something small and glowing tore right through the top of the right wing, right outside Tarvin's viewing window. It was too small to know what it was, but even in the chaos, Tarvin could tell somehow the shot came from the moon's surface, which should have been impossible. The whole ship shuddered, far more than it should have, as if something had wrapped around it, crushing the center of it just slightly. After that, things had gotten hazy. Well, Tarvin thought, reaching to free the seat buckle, there's air, so somehow the ship isn't sucking vacuum. That was more than a minor miracle, he knew. Looking around, he saw bubbles of red floating in the air, pieces of food, trays, silverware, and bodies. Three immediately looked dead. The others were iffy. Apparently, most of the passengers had decided dinner would be a good time to mingle. Some were still strapped in, but a quick count said at least three bodies were missing. All security, he was sure. Floating toward the ceiling, Tarvin just had time to see the body flying toward him fist-first before the impact made him careen roughly back, scraping the ceiling the whole time. Recovering, he stood at the rear of the cabin, his legs on either side of the sealed doorway. Tarvin frowned, staring up at his attacker, nearly as heavy as he was and just as muscled and tatted up. "'You really think this is the time for this shit?' Tarvin said." Behind the man, two others slowly, clumsily emerged from the front compartment entryway. They were big, too. The first one grunted. "'Send my regards to mentions when you see him in hell,' he said in a thick accent. "'Russian. He should be waiting for you already.' "'Well, good thing he paid in advance.' Tarvin doubted the old man was dead, but that seemed like the least of his worries. There was a security scanner at the port, and he knew for a fact that everyone, despite certain protests, went through it. It didn't mean Tarvin wasn't armed, though. But if they'd managed to sneak a firearm on board, he couldn't spot it. And honestly, he was sure they'd be stupid enough to have used a gun already if they had one. Tarvin wasn't particularly fond of guns and found little use for them. He did, however, like blades. The right knife could act as a surprisingly useful tool in nearly any situation such as this one. He reached down slowly to his right shoe, a sneaker with a specialized swoosh-like logo. Applying pressure on the end of the logo with his thumb, Tarvin slid the five-inch curved blade out. It was a hybrid porcelain, tougher than steel and undetectable. He gripped the curve of the hook tightly, then leapt straight at the first man. Tarvin was a large man, but he hadn't always been, He knew from experience that most guys his size frequently relied on that innate advantage to overpower or intimidate opponents. In this line, they were inevitably mercenaries, which meant ex military and, especially, special forces. So these guys would know how to fight, but the look on their faces gave up a clueless sense of superiority. They didn't know who he was. He didn't care who they were. Tarvin had never been in space, but he knew how to move in a freefall and he understood the physics at work. He was guessing these three weren't PhDs in anything but beatdowns, and it showed in their clumsy motions as they moved to meet him. Tarvin rolled his body as the first one got to him, the two behind him almost piling up on top of their partner. A slight inertial angle toward the floor let Tarvin move onto the first as he rolled feet up, hands against the aisle floor, and mule-kicked the man into the ceiling with a hard crack. Without hesitating, Tarvin flipped backwards into the other two. He was on them before the blood had time to start bubbling out from the back of the first man's skull. He punched one in the face, resulting in a satisfying snap. Tarvin pushed one leg against the back of one on a seat, slashing the knife across the other's neck. Following the swing around so his back was to them, Tarvin kicked back against the still-breathing body as hard as he could, crashing the man into the steel framing around the airlock. Tarvin spun around without stopping so fast he didn't even see the cut from the knife in the man's throat. He stopped a few feet forward, breathing hard, staring down the aisle as blood ran up like a floating river behind him. His eyes met someone's now, a terrified nerd with too much money and no sense. Tarvin sighed, shoving the floating body of the first attacker out of the way. "'You,' he said to the diminutive man, "'you know what the fuck is happening?' The man stared, horrified for a moment, then shook his head. I... I... Tarvin looked at him impatiently. He recognized the guy. An IT nerd who made one of those creepy-ass social media sites that kept stealing everyone's data, apologizing for it, then promptly doing it again. Mark something or other. He said, the man finally said, that we were going to rendezvous with the new station. A joint project between the backers and the Chinese. And... And, Mark hesitated, and he said that someone was trying to steal the investment. Our investment. The mogul seemed earnest now. He sold us on an endlessly renewable new form of energy if we were bold enough to catch it. So we did. Who the fuck is he? Tarvin asked. Mark flinched at the question and looked away. Tarvin asked again, angrier. The man looked down, shaking his head. He was supposed to be dead, he said after a moment, in the crash. The crash. It wasn't rocket science to guess, it was Aton Vask, who supposedly died 12 years ago in what was supposed to be the original maiden voyage of his dream space tourism business. So, Vask fakes his own death, hides out in secret while quietly recruiting all his billionaire buddies to invest in... What? A space station resort of assholes while you all sat there and waited for an asteroid to hit? Tarvin could barely believe the words, but the man nodded, then shook his head. Not just a station, a base, right there, he pointed out the viewport at the dark rock below them. And how in the ever-loving hell did you expect to get there? Tarvin nearly shouted, and the man shuddered. He, he told us everything was already worked out, that everything was accounted for. Tarvin looked around at the wrecked shuttle, at the floating bodies, the blood pooling in zero-g. Does this look like everything is all working out? He exclaimed. Idiot. All your rich asshole friends are idiots. He played you. This is his hostile takeover of your money, your companies, and your lives. He sent you up here to die so he didn't have to share his bullshit alien toys. Mark shook his head in disbelief. No, he said. No, he wouldn't do that. He already did, dumbass. The shots that tore this can of Spam up, they came from there, Tarvin pointed to the moon. Before anyone could say another word, the shuttle shuddered and lurched again. It was a strange, almost slow-motion sensation, knocking Tarvin into the sealed rear airlock. Gripping the headrests of the nearest seats, he stared intently out the viewport at that spot of black he knew was the moon. They were definitely moving closer. As he stared, he started to see more. There were goddamn structures down there, and something else. A spot, a hole, something. It was darker than the darkness around it, and moving. Not like water, more like a gigantic circle of undulating lines. The blackness moved at the edges in one spot, then another, as if trying to push outward, but unable. Then something deep in the center of the mass moved. What the fuck is that? Tarvin asked. Both men stared. At first it was a distinct bluish wavering in the center of the spot. Then the light formed a tip. Another second and a chaotic series of softly glowing blue tips appeared. The lights kept elongating, moving constantly upward. It took another second before Tarvin realized what he was staring at. Holy mother of... He trailed off. We need to get off this thing. Now. It was impossible to tell how many tentacles were writhing their way toward them, but each one was beyond massive. They seemed ethereal, outlined in that blue light, but otherwise transparent. Tarvin wanted to scream, to completely lose it, but held himself together, thinking, always thinking. The cold was becoming an issue. Thus far, the cabin had stayed relatively stable, but the temperature was dropping fast, and it would be colder still past that airlock. Intellectually, Tarvin knew that instantly freezing in the vacuum of space was a myth. You'd die of asphyxiation long before your body was iced, but it was never something he wanted to put to the test. The suits were back there. He'd seen them on the shuttle's diagram and inventory list. Six spacesuits. Back there, behind that door, which might conceivably be able to be opened if the emergency pressurization foam worked. That was a big if, but easy enough to check. Either the door could be opened with the emergency release, or it couldn't. If it didn't, the foam didn't work and they were going to die a few minutes earlier. Tarvin reached for the emergency release handle just right of the lock, gripped it tightly, and twisted. The handle begrudgingly rotated down and the door made a creaking protestation. He gave Mark a nervous side glance, then pumped the lever back up and down again. The door, at least six inches thick, slightly opened out into the next compartment. He gave it another two pumps and it freed the lock seals enough for him to push it open. Something blocked the door from opening completely. A body, one of the flight attendants, was jammed between the door and wall. Ahead was a circular tunnel with built-in shelving along the whole expanse. Emergency lighting gave everything a dim reddish hue. There were four other bodies ahead, floating still at the end of the space one was missing a part of its chest. The gaping wound looked charred. Near the end, Tarvin could see the mass of expanded foam against the left-hand wall. It looked like a gray whirlpool frozen in mid-torrent. If the blueprints were right, the suits should be at the very end, near the secondary outer lock. Tarvin moved as fast as he could, pushing the bodies out of the way to reach the suit lockers. The shuttle shuddered again and started to rotate around him. Tarvin grabbed the locker handle and pulled it open, trying not to throw up, revealing the two sealed suits inside. Theoretically, these were the large sized suits, with an intelligent adjustment system for heights between five foot nine and six foot seven, but he was sure it would be a tight fit. Most of the people they planned these suits for weren't built like him. He could hear the clumsy motions and gasping of Mark behind him, barely holding together. Tarvin turned and held out one of the suits. Put this on, he said. Now. The man managed to grab the suit with one hand, holding on tightly to a sealing handle with the other. Tarvin braced himself as well as he could and tore open the seal to his suit. He kicked his shoes off and peeled back the chest locks of the suit. Holding the suit open, he brought his knees up and slid his legs down. As soon as his feet pushed into the boots, a painfully tight fit, he could feel the suit shifting around him, The suit constricted around him further as he finished, automatically sealing, before the suit's fabric and structural skeleton loosened and stretched to fit his body. A second later, the boots clamped on the metal floor, causing Tarvin to lurch. Magnetic boots. Tarvin smiled and looked at Mark, who was still struggling to open the suit's plastic shipping bag. Hold on, Tarvin told him, grabbing the bag and ripping it open. He stretched the suit out and unsealed the chest piece and held it open. Push your legs in. Clumsily, the man managed the feet, but fell into Tarvin when the boots locked. Tarvin pushed him away, reaching into the locker again to grab helmets. The HUD lit up as soon as the helmet automatically locked onto the suit. The holographic display showed him Mark's view in a small window in the upper left. Oxygen, suit integrity, heart rate, and other data was tracked continuously on the display. Stay here, Tarvin said. Tarvin went to the entryway, braced himself against the wall, and shoved the airlock door closed. He had to move the body to get to the manual lock, but heard the lock slide and clank to seal the door after a few pumps. Okay, he said when he got back to Mark, who was nervously floating by the rear lockers. We need to depressurize this compartment again, and then we're going to jump. What? Mark replied. Are you insane? Tarvin shrugged. We'll probably die but at least it won't be by getting crushed like spam in a can by whatever the fuck is out there. Tarvin had before launch tried to work out all the ways things could go wrong in space, but decided that since that was everything, he'd focus on a few contingency plans. One of them was the theoretical question of how to decompress a ship compartment without dying horribly. The bends in particular was a significant worry. The suits should potentially equalize the shift in pressure, but not instantaneously. The trick he decided in the end, after a fulfilling evening of pencil and chalk formulation, was to use the suit's own ability to adjust its own pressure ahead of time. Hypothetically, the idea was to force the suit to start to adjust its pressure before the vacuum seals on the ship popped. Sure, they'd still get sucked out into open space, as long as they didn't get crushed on something before that, but they shouldn't die horribly because their blood literally boiled from the pressure changes. Hypothetically. The ship shuddered again, as if something had pushed it. Tarvin struggled to stay upright and tapped on the display of the suit's right forearm. He slid and tapped through the setting, drilling down to menus no one should normally ever touch, turning off safeguards. It took two minutes. A terrible creaking, then cracking sound came from the passenger section, and the whole ship lurched. He slid the routine to Mark's suit and told the system to activate it just as the walls caved in. The suit's emergency warning screamed as the suits constricted. Mark screamed and struggled to breathe. Tarvin gasped. It hurt. A lot. Then the corridor snapped in half, lights instantly blinking out and flashes of glowing blue moving away. Tarvin felt his back hit something, his eyes full of stars. The suit seemed to exhale and relax and the pressure readings equalized. He was against the outside of the passenger compartment. The boots had locked on, and he wasn't broken. The HUD readout said he was still alive, but the feed from the other suit was gone. A stream of red bubbles passed by him as his perch spun slowly, forcing Tarvin's gaze to the body impaled on a particularly nasty piece of torn metal sticking out of the ripped-apart passenger segment. Tarvin shuddered. Sorry, Mark, he said. No more selfies for you. The fuselage's slow turn gave him time to appreciate an impossibly beautiful view of open space. Tarvin considered his options. The debris was definitely heading moonside, so he could just hitch the ride down. He could let go and just wait. Given all the ways in his life, he'd almost died. This wasn't a bad way to go. Mentally going through the calculations, he could hypothetically make it to the moon, letting the fuselage's inertia do most of the work. Then what? There was a base. His suit worked. It was almost possible. It's not like he had anything better to do. A sudden piercing pain in his skull blinded him, causing him to bend over in agony, his teeth grinding so tightly he couldn't even scream. There was a shrill, static-like sonic distortion that after a few seconds slowed down its oscillations and, as the pain subsided, Tarvin could make out slow, slurring words. Free. Us. There was a brief pause, then in a more natural tone. Free us. Stop torture. Free us. The moon came into view again, and Tarvin gasped. Two of the giant tentacles were directly in front of him, one slowly wrapping around the ship section he was locked to. The tip of the other stopped right at eye level. Tiny blue iridescent specks, like marble-sized glowing balls of gas, flew around rapidly inside the tentacle. A mass of them stopped and zipped to the very front of the tentacle's tip. Help us, the voice said. No, voices, like a multi-layered echo. The lights pulsed with the words. Tarvin stared at the creature, whatever it was, and just assumed the alternative to saying no was being crushed like a grape. Okay, he said. How? Somewhere on the way down, a flood of alien images and sound overwhelmed Tarvin's senses. He could feel the urgent need of the creatures, whatever they were. Through fragments of memories, they showed him sequences of events that started billions of years before. A massive data dump of imagery, sounds, music, and math. Everything was underlined with mathematical formulas that started out in strange symbols, then morphed into empirical numbers. Underneath it all was a constant and changing song, like the mournful lullabies of alien whales. Somehow, Tarvin could understand most of what he was witnessing, even if they didn't speak. In the most simplistic terms, the organism was reminiscent of the quaking aspen tree or honey fungus on Earth, a massive spreading organism that seemed like a group of separate life forms, but were actually one massive thing, just on a cosmic scale. These aliens were completely interconnected as one mind-bogglingly huge entity. At the same time, they were also a mass of singular intelligent and aware organisms. It was as if the individual cells in a human body could think and to some extent act autonomously, but still adhere to their individual roles to keep the structure whole. It was hard to fathom but the gist as tarvin was led to understand was that the life form wasn't just from another physical dimension it literally was the dimension its very being and the fabric of its reality were completely intertwined it was its own pocket universe and even supported other life beyond itself life that the riff and aton were killing tarvin saw flashes of the man at different time periods his alleged death by explosion secret meetings with the chinese his first steps on the ass end of the moon. Aton somehow had found a way to open a gate and force some of the dimensional beings out. It was the fragment from the meteor, some alien element that, when triggered, ripped breeches in multiple dimensions. Aton knew how to use it, which was a huge red flag for Tarvin. The creature gave no indication where the man had acquired such knowledge. From its perspective, something had crudely, excruciatingly sawed part of it open, The rift was a terrible, gushing wound that was kept forcibly opened by an unknown life-form in an unknown universe. It couldn't recoil. It couldn't move outside this invisible cylindrical trap. As its essence leaked through the gash, Aton siphoned it off like gasoline. Unlimited energy and, it seemed, power. And Aton loved power. Tarvin focused on the image of what was Aton morphing into something new. He was still human-shaped, but towered over the rest of the crew of the base. No longer fettered down by the need for a bulky spacesuit. he obsessively guarded the rift. He glowed as if made of energy. Like a dirty fire, he flickered with yellows and reds, with black streaks constantly coming to the surface of liquid flames. The final image was of Aton standing there, in a flaming suit, looking up and smiling. Tarvin's vision flashed, and he was back to reality staring at the dark surface of the moon rocketing toward him. Or the other way around, he corrected himself. And what, he said a second later, do you expect me to do against that? The one Aton is tainted, the echoing voice replied. It wants only power. It stole from us and consumed our power. But power stolen is corrupt, poisoned. So I should wait around for him to die of what? Food poisoning? No, that one is like a pulsing star ready to die a violent death. Nothing in your system would live. All the life on your planets would be burned away in moments, starting with your home world. Huh, Tarvin said. There's other life out there? Not for long. Okay, okay. What exactly is your plan? Simple. Power given freely is pure. Years before... The first time Tarvin had halo-jumped, he'd been scared shitless, but the exhilaration was unlike anything else. He was sure nothing could ever match that sheer primal thrill of falling through the sky at 30,000 feet. He was wrong. Energy crackled through him. Pulsing blue and white tendrils of power surrounded him. Something between fire and liquid, it had burned through the suit in an instant. He could feel it through his entire body, and on the outside, it flowed over him like a second skin. Tarvin could see everything ahead of him, the dark side of the moon illuminated before him in vivid detail. He could see the hidden base, a series of seven connected small circular buildings. The base was about a half a mile from the epicenter of the rift, a massive gaping black maw inside an already black crater. And in between the two stood Aton, staring directly up at Tarvin, He had a huge grin on his glowing, flame-licked face. Tarvin accelerated, well beyond any speed possible on Earth, and just before impact, twisted his body around to land on his feet about twenty feet from Aton. "'Hey,' Tarvin said, waving. "'How you doing?' Aton laughed and shook his head. "'Better than I've ever been. Thanks for asking. Whatever the old man wanted, it doesn't matter. He's a fossil. Dead.' "'Stiff, obsolete, a distant memory. "'You don't owe him any loyalty now. "'Not that you ever did.' "'Tarvin shook his head and casually floated forward. Mentions might be dead or alive, "'but he paid me in advance, so I'm really not worried about it. "'He hired me to acquire something, "'but he's either a better liar than I gave him credit for, "'or he was truly clueless about what the hell you've been doing up here.' "'Aton laughed again flames whipping out around him expressively. None of them had any idea, he exclaimed. That's the beauty of the whole thing. They funded it, I played dead, China built it, and here I am, just soaking up the sun. His body brightened to a blinding degree, though Tarvin's eyes adjusted almost immediately. You know you're going to die badly, right? Tarvin asked. That power you've got? It's like thermonuclear cancer. That I'm, what, about to go supernova? Wipe out all human life? His hands waved, shoulders shrugged. Honestly, even if it were true, who cares? I can see everything now. This entire backwater solar system can kiss my thermonuclear ass. That supernova? Yeah, that's my ticket to ride, baby. I worked it out. I can reach Andromeda with this level of power, and I hear they have great fucking parties there. Tarvin grimaced. He assumed Aton was a megalomaniac and an asshole, but genocidal? You know, he said, when I was young, I idolized you and what you were trying to do. Hell, I felt sad when you supposedly exploded. But now I see you're just another rich asshole. Oh, Aton laughed. I'm not just another. I am the one and only. With that, Aton flew toward Tarvin fast enough to be nothing but a bright yellow light trail. Tarvin felt an impact against the side of his face. Blue sparks surged off of him angrily, and Tarvin instantly twisted around as Aton blinked past him and punched him in the back of the head. The soundless impact caused the man to shoot toward the glowing rift at an insane rate only to hit an invisible barrier trapping the tentacles in and everything else out. Blue energy surged around him as a massive tentacle futilely slammed at Aton's body from within. Aton yelled out, pain and anger coursing through his body as he got a hold of himself and flew toward Tarvin again. Tarvin was a nanosecond too slow to avoid being tackled. The billionaire slammed him against the surface of the moon without letting go, driving Tarvin across and into the rocky surface. It should have hurt, but Tarvin barely registered anything but minor annoyance as he twisted himself free and wrapped his arms around Aton's body. Crushing Aton as hard as he could, Tarvin willed himself to shoot directly up, and in a bare second they were careening away from the surface of the moon. Aton screamed, feeling the painful pressure, and unleashed an explosion of energy so powerful it bent space around them as it propelled them apart. The energy field around the rift erupted violently in a wave of surging energy and the tentacles writhed violently. Tarvin looked behind to see the sun rapidly taking up more space in his horizon. Tarvin could feel Aton before he could see him. Clenching his fists, he started an uppercut punch into open space a split second before the yellow blur of light reached him. The effect was a stunning fountain of blazing yellows and reds, rising up at nearly the speed of light. Tarvin followed, leaving his own intense trail of furious blue, white, and purple flame. He spun around Aton, landing punches mercilessly. Aton punched and kicked clumsily, desperate to push Tarvin away. The flames were intensifying now, becoming brighter and lighter. "'You idiot!' he screamed. "'This is a gift from the universe, and you'd just let it go to waste. I'm the only future humanity has!' Tarvin grabbed Aton with both hands and slammed his forehead right into the man's face. "'You're the one who willingly turned themselves into a fusion reactor,' Tarvin yelled. "'But it's okay. I'm a scientist.' One hand firmly locked on Aton. Tarvin slammed his fist into Aton's face a few more times. Blood whispered from Aton's mouth and nostril, evaporating in a hiss instantly. Tarvin gripped Aton tightly and twisted around toward the moon. "'But there's good news,' Tarvin said." smiling. You're a gift that's returnable. Even from this distance, he could see the tentacles were reaching out, spreading like a writhing flower in bloom. Aton was struggling to focus, then just stopped, and started laughing. Tarvin could feel the heat coming from Aton increasing exponentially, his human features fading away before the searing energy. "Uh Uh-oh, Tarvin muttered, as he focused his own energy into one final punch. He felt the crushing impact and nuclear heat for a split second before Aton, energy pulsing outward from him like a miniature star, shot backwards as the energy consumed what was left of the man inside. In seconds, it reached the edge of the tentacle's span. The mass of energy was nearly a quarter the size of the moon itself. The tentacles instantly wrapped around the giant pulsing sphere of energy and slid backwards through the rift. The rift collapsed sending a shockwave of blue energy out. The pulse destroyed the barrier and spread outward across the entire surface of the moon. Seconds later, the energy was gone and all was still. Tarvin felt a wave of cold overcome him before gasping for a second and passing out. Consciousness returned in fits and starts, strange dreams of other realities filling in the gaps between. When Tarvin finally did open his eyes, He saw nothing but blurry white above, heard the soft whirring of some unseen machine, and smelled roses. He groaned. Don't try to get up, Mr. Barish," a man's voice said. Your body has had quite a shock to its system, and so has your mind, I'd wager. It was mentions. Tarvin turned his head to look at the old man sitting next to the hospital bed he was laying in. You lied to me, Tarvin managed to croak out. Mention smiled and quietly laughed "well the old man said after a few seconds in my defense telling you to go rescue an entire pocket dimension being trapped and tortured by a superpowered insane megalomaniac on the moon seemed like the wrong approach here" he said leaning in with a bottle of water "drink this even with the drip you're incredibly dehydrated" Mentions took the cap of the bottle and handed it to Tarvin slowly grabbing the bottle Tarvin nodded and drank. "'Why you?' Menchins continued. "'That's the next question. "'Because I needed someone with the strength of will, "'someone unhampered by both narcissism "'and the kind of arrogance that destroys weak men, "'someone confident enough in their abilities "'to not let fear overwhelm them "'and intellectually superior enough "'to work the math out on the fly.' "'Tarvin laughed now. "'You guys really like your math.' Mention smiled and nodded. It is the universal language, here and in all the rest. But then you too like your math. It's why I felt the mother host would be able to meld with you. Also, Stephen Hawking is regrettably past and likely not in any shape to survive, Vask's onslaught. Another moment, and Menchins looked at Tarvin thoughtfully. How did you know I was with them? I didn't, Tarvin said, but I did the math. I figured at least if they reached out to me, they tried it before. I wasn't thinking they sent a human-shaped tentacle to Earth. Mentions laughed again. Oh, now, I'm not part of the mother. They told you they cherished and supported life. Well, I'm merely a native son, so to speak. I came here much earlier. But we can talk about all that once you've recovered. We still have a great deal to do, Mr. Barish, and there's so much to discuss. Menchins, Tarvis said, coughing and taking another swig of water. I want to raise. Jason D. April has been writing professionally for over 20 years, mostly in nonfiction. You can find his bylines appearing on such sites as Playboy, Paste Magazine, Motherboard, Upload VR, and others. Occasionally, he even lets bits of fiction escape out into the wild. Jason does not tweet. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, Please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.